Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There are these moments in history, these kind of hinge points in history that that are like before that and after that, right? Before 9-11, after 9-11. Things were different. Before Reagan, you could go to college if you could, you know, if you could get into the school, if you could pass the tests or your grades were good enough. You could go to college pretty much anywhere in the country. Yes, there were some, you know, Yale and Harvard were, were expensive, but... You know, most colleges, certainly state colleges and and easily community colleges, you could go to college and pay for it out of your pocket change, basically. Pay for it, you know, with a part-time job. After Reagan, that all changed. When Reagan came into office, about 20% of the cost of higher education was paid for by by tuition, and about 80% was paid for by state, federal, and local governments. And in some cases, colleges having a buffer of their own, basically some sort of an endowment or other kind of program. A lot of these were created in the 1860s. In 1863, I think it was, or 64, when Abraham Lincoln created the land-grant college program, where as president, he identified 56 large parcels of land in different states all over the country and gave those to the states and said, use this land to create enough money to build a university that people can go to college for free. Now, in doing that, what Lincoln was doing was standing on the shoulders of what Jefferson did after he left the White House when he created the University of Virginia as the first free college in the United States. Obviously, in both cases, there were some barriers to entry. But the point is that the idea that education is the foundational stuff, it's the foundational investment that we make in the intellectual infrastructure of our country, is solid. And those land-grant colleges that Lincoln created back in the 1860s are still out there. You know, Michigan State University among them. I mean, there's a bunch of land-grant colleges. I believe there's still 56. There's a Google page devoted to them, in fact. So education before Reagan was easy. I mean, getting into college, you had to you had to work. You know, when you went to high school, you had to get good grades. But getting in, paying for college wasn't an issue. After Reagan, it became a ticket to the poorhouse. 
We have literally millions of Americans, and not just young Americans. I mean, there are people in their 60s with college debt. There are literally millions of Americans who can't afford to buy a house, can't afford to start a family, can't even take the chance of starting their own small business, which used to be the ticket to the American dream, right? They were one of the tickets to the American dream. Can't even do that because they have this massive student debt. Well, the law about student debt, it's called the Higher Education Act of 1965. This was passed when Lyndon Johnson was president. And Section 432A of that law says that the Secretary of Education, now in that case it would be Michael Cardona, and it says that the Secretary of Education, and I'm, I'm reading from the law, quote, has the authority to modify loan terms and, in quote, enforce, pay, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired, including any equity of any or any right of redemption. In other words, they can just wipe debt off the books, student debt, federally issued student debt. And in fact, we did this last year. Joe Biden bragged about it in, believe it was in his State of the Union address, I might be wrong, but he, I, I remember him talking about it, how they wiped $17 billion of student debt off the books. Just wiped it off the books. Now, the problem is $17 billion is about 1% of the total student debt. We've got a $1.7 or $1.8 trillion student debt right now. But half of that student debt is federally financed and could be eliminated tomorrow morning. And there is a movement to do this. There's a group called the Debt Collective. And uh, yesterday, there was a huge uh, protest, a huge uh, demonstration in Washington, D.C. People came from all over the country for a day of action on student debt. They have named their program, Pick Up the Pen, Joe. In other words, pick up your pen and sign debt relief. You can do this by executive action. Or the, the Secretary of Labor, you know, has the authority to do this, apparently, at least from my reading of this law. More than a thousand professors nationwide have endorsed this demand. Biden, when he was running for president, President Biden, when he was running for president, made a campaign promise to eliminate $10,000 of student debt from all the federal loans. He has not fulfilled that yet. A lot of Democratic lawmakers in the Progressive Caucus, they're saying, how about $50,000 worth of student debt? Well, how about all of it? When my dad turned 17, World War II was in its last days, but nobody knew it was his last days. And he, he got out of high school and, well, actually when he graduated from high school, he was 17, he immediately joined the army. As, you know, young men did back then, you know, going off to fight the Nazis and things. Now, by the time he got out of basic training, the war was over. And so they sent him over to Japan for two years where he basically ran the swimming pool at the officer's club and was a lifeguard. It was my dad's tough duty. But, you know, and he had a good time. But when he came back, when he came back from the war, 
he got free college. He went to college for two and a half years. He finally dropped out because mom got pregnant with me and he needed an income. And so he got a job in a steel mill in Grand Rapids. But that student loan program that was called the GI Bill that lasted until 1965. I'm not sure the education component of it lasted that long. It might have just been the uh, housing component. But, you know, it started in, as I recall, 1947, maybe 46, but I think it was 47. That program, for every $1, we now have the numbers. We can look back on this. There's no debate about this. For every $1 that the federal government spent educating people like my dad, or probably a better example because my dad dropped out, better example would be Louise's dad. He also joined the military during World War II. He joined the Navy. When he came back, he took the GI Bill and went to college and got his law degree. And he became the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. He was earning so much more money than he would have earned if he didn't have a college degree. So now we look at the numbers and we see that for every $1 that was invested in students like my dad and Louise's dad back in the 40s, we got back $7, we the country, we got $7 in added tax revenue through their lifetimes because they earned more and therefore they paid more in taxes. For every dollar we invested in the education of our young people, we got a $7 return. And that's just on the taxes. That doesn't count the fact that a lot of those people became scientists and invented things. I mean, the whole NASA thing, the whole dot-com revolution, much of this stuff tracks back to the GI Bill. And this where America went from the majority of Americans having a high school diploma to a really significant minority of Americans, or a much larger minority of Americans, having a college diploma. It became the new standard. And we need to go back to that. And we can't go back to that if going to college means that for the next 30 years of your life, you're not going to be able to start a family, buy a house, start a business, do anything other than just, you know, labor in the trenches. And again, this is all caused by the corruption of the big bankers who are making a fortune on the private side of the student loans, which is another thing we have to do something about. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What politician could stand up against this? What say you? Finland. Let's talk about Finland. Actually, Finland is kind of emblematic of Scandinavia in general. But they've been named the happiest country in the world now for, what, six, seven years in a row? Before that, it was Denmark. In fact, the last time Denmark got named the happiest country in the world, Louise and I went to Denmark and did our show from there for a week or two. And uh, it was an absolutely fascinating experience. And, you know, it's Finland kind of the same thing. So should Finland show us our, our, our future? We in the United States, being informed by you know, right-wing media and uh, conservatives, as it were, across the, across the board, have, have had this notion, and it, and it really got sold to us in a big way in the 80s with Ronald Reagan, the, who played you know, a cowboy on TV and, uh, and, and in films and, and played a cowboy as president, too. Although he, uh, uh, well, in, in any case, he, he, George W. Bush tried the same little trick, you'll recall. He bought a ranch, 
Remember when he was going to, when he decided he was going to run for president in 1999, George W. Bush moved out of his, his uh, uh, you know, luxury mansion and into a pig farm down in Crawford, Texas, that they re-outfitted to be a, a ranch, except that there were no horses because George W. Bush is afraid of horses. But nonetheless, he was like, yes, it's the cowboy ethic. Yeah, I'm going to go out and clear brush is what he liked to do. Yeah. And we got this whoever w dies with the most toys wins kind of mentality. During the Reagan era, there was this celebration of great wealth. Remember the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas and, you know, uh, greed is good, my friends. It's good. Everything, you know, everything is driven by greed. Well, this, this is the mantra. This was the Milton Friedman mantra. This is the the core essential belief system of what you refer to as neoliberalism. The idea that 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 money kind of drives everything. There's also a religious aspect to this. That in the United States, we have arguably adopted uh, a, a form of Christianity that Jesus would not recognize. It's a it's a it's a variation on on Calvinism or on what took over Calvinism after John Calvin died which is the idea that, you know, everybody's a sinner and that your destiny is determined before you are born. Calvinists believe in predestination. It was one of John Calvin's, uh, you know, principles. And so even before you're born, God has figured out who's the good who are the good people and who are the bad people. And somehow God has to communicate to us who the good people are so that we can put them in charge of things. Because you only want people running your country who God has blessed, right? And so the theory that the Calvinists came up with, no surprise the Betsy DeVos and her family are Calvinists, as far as I know, is that the richer you are, the more God has blessed you. And so we've got this whole kind of religion. This is, this is seeped into the, into the Protestant, uh, uh, the so-called Protestant ethic. It's... it's the evangelical church has become just basically all about this. Back in the 80s, when this first emerged as a big way beyond Calvinism, it was called the prosperity gospel. And there have been, you know, attempts to pitch it into the black community, into the white community, it's just right across the board. You know, just believe in Jesus and you'll get rich. Except that Jesus said the opposite. He said, you know, rich people are not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. This is the system. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. Greed is good. God loves you if you're rich, and, and we should all put rich people in charge of everything because that's proof that that's what God wants. This has seized America. It has not seized Finland. First of all, most of Scandinavia is very secular. Churches are principally, there are, there are still some people who go to church, but mostly they're used for ceremonial purposes, for weddings and for bar mitzvahs and, and confirmations and, and uh, you know, events, as it were. Instead, the religion is one of we're here for each other. I would argue that they're actually practicing what Jesus preached rather than preaching what in America we're practicing, which is the greed is good thing. A great summary of this over at Daily Kos by Dan Kay. He's quoting Lisa Hattinen, who is a communications coordinator for the city of Espoo. Espoo is a, a small town just outside of Helsinki. And they asked her, you know, okay, uh, Lisa, uh, Lisa, Lisi, excuse me, L-I-I-S-I. -I. Okay, Lisi, how is it 
that Finland is the happiest country in the world. What is that? I mean, you've got lousy winters. They last forever. You got, you know, what was the old joke we used to have? We used to say when we lived in, in Vermont, you know, you've got nine months of winter and three months of bad sledding. Um, so it's dark. It's cold. How can you be the happiest people in the world? And she answered, everybody has access to the basics. Now let that sink in for a minute as you, as, you, as you drive down the street and pass all these homeless people who don't have housing. Or as you go to the store and you see people, you know, literally stealing food and walking out with it because they don't have food. Or as you read the statistics about how America has the shortest lifespan in the entire developed world because tens of millions of Americans have no access to health care at all, they, they, you know, outside of an emergency room, and, and you only go there long after that cancer has now you know, grown to the point where it's causing you to bleed out. Or they do have insurance, but hey, it's got a $5,000 deductible, and who's got $5,000? She says these programs are well thought out and they work, so that's the basic foundation for you to be happy. In Finland, you can go to college for free. Your health care is covered. It's like the, the you know, housing is, is actually a right in most of Scandinavia. I'm not certain if it is in Finland. It is in Denmark. One of the things I learned from when I was there. So how different would America be if Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms or his, his, uh, his uh, you know, second second sales pitch at the, the second bill of rights, actually, is not the four freedoms, his second bill of rights, which he proposed the, the year that he died, as I recall. We were still in the war when he proposed this. He was like, you know, okay, we're still in the war, but we need to get ready for this. And the second bill of rights is that, you know, everybody has a right to housing. Everybody has a right to a job that pays well. Everybody has a right to, to health care. Everybody has a right to food. Everybody has a right to the essentials which is what she's talking about in Finland. How different would America be if we did that? Well, first of all, in order to pay for that, we would probably have fewer billionaires. Instead of being worth 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 billion dollars, our really rich people would be worth one or two billion dollars or you know, 300 million or 500 million dollars. That would be probably one of the biggest and most conspicuous changes. Secondly, we wouldn't have homeless people all over our streets. We would see our average lifespan go up to that of other developed countries, like Canada, for goodness sake. You know, what, how different would America be? Now, the one, the one thing that's most fascinating about this argument that I'm making, that we need to adopt what the Northern Europeans have done for years and years and years, because it's working for them. And by the way, they're doing this because they took Harry Truman's advice after the end of World War II. He couldn't get these things passed here in the United States. So he pushed Europe to adopt free education, free health care, uh, you know, just basic, uh, the right to unionize, absolute right to unionize. Many of these countries have 90, 80, 90 percent unionization rates. The one argument that I get, and I've been doing this show for 19 years, and whenever I bring this stuff up, some, 
some white guy will invariably call in and say, yeah, but the difference between Finland and the United States is that there's not that many black people in Finland or brown people or people that don't look like Finns. As if everybody looking the same in the country means that the country is going to be prosperous, which is the sales pitch that white supremacists have to offer us. The fact of the matter is that, yeah, the United States is more diverse than Finland. So why don't we have a higher standard of living in those diverse communities? Because of racism. You've got the causation backwards. It's not that diversity causes countries to end up as oligarchies with rich people and a lot of poor people. It's that oligarchies use race to divide people and to justify having a permanent underclass based on race. So spare me the, the objection that, oh yeah, well, in Finland you've got a homogenous society. We're a more heterogeneous society. Come on, that's BS. I'm not buying that. That's, that, that is excusing institutionalized racism. Using the cheapest, laziest argument you can come up with. Now, I realize it's very popular on the right. But, you know, for obvious reasons. But is it time for us to take a lesson from Scandinavia? And, and much of the rest of the developed world, by the way. The, you know, everything I'm describing about Finland could also be said of Taiwan or South Korea or Japan. Most of the rest of Europe, of Western Europe anyway. Costa Rica has free education and free health care, or very cheap. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What would it take to get us there? Do we have to unwind part of our military, or just is it just a matter of taxing the rich? Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Biden administration just announced that they are extending the, uh, the pause on repayment of student debt, which was supposed to expire on the 1st of May or at the end of April, actually. You'd start having to pay back your loans starting in May. It's now going to run through the end of August, through August 31st. So that's interesting. Borrower balances, this is from CNN, borrower balances have effectively been frozen for more than two years with no payments required on most federal student loans since March of 2020. During this time, interest has stopped adding up and collections on defaulted debts have been on hold. So they're going to extend this to August 31st. And let's see. 
I mean, this August 31st is, uh, I mean, you know, it's followed by September 1st, the first day of September, which is really the beginning, the hardcore beginning, or the first week of September, you know, after, after it's the end of summer vacation, and it's really the beginning of the fall election season. So maybe, we'll see, but maybe the Biden administration is planning on doing some sort of massive student debt relief starting in September or at the end of August, as the case may be. Uh, time will tell, but uh, keep an eye on, on this one. Hey, Marvin in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Marvin, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Good. What's up? Hey, I just want to talk to you about this student debt thing. Um, the origin of student debt really started back with the Vietnam War when students didn't have debt. A lot of students got out there and they protested basically the war, and they protested so much that basically did away with that war. They made a factor in the government getting out of Vietnam. So what they what what happened was that it's a control measure. If you put young people and students like in debt, they won't protest because they owe something to the system, and they're scared to protest when they owe the system. So they basically don't protest. So when they start taking it from grants to loans, that was just a way to stop the young people from protesting the way they did in the Vietnam War. It's like a control measure. You are absolutely right, Marvin. And, and Ronald Reagan said it right out loud. I mean, when he was governor, when he became governor of California, it was free to go to any University of California college. If you could get in, you paid no tuition. And, and, and Reagan undid that. He ended that. And when he was asked why, he said, why should I pay for these brats to protest my policies? I mean, you know, it's I like, guess the only, he just came right out and said I guess the only other thing I would say was a lot of things basically came from the lesson. I guess we would call them conservatives, that they learned from what went wrong in their, from their point of view in the Vietnam War. Yeah. It's like not showing you what really happens during war. You know, you don't really get the, the detailed war coverage like you got in Vietnam because that's, that kind of stuff makes people protest. Oh, yeah. That's, that's when George W. Bush embedded the reporters with the, with the soldiers going into Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, so instead of seeing, you know, the horror of war, we were seeing kind of the glory of war. I'm with you, Marvin. And, and, and frankly, the Vietnam War didn't really start to turn until the, I think it was probably around 67. Um, maybe, maybe 68. I, I you know, I, I, I was just a teenager then. I don't remember the date, the dates all that clearly, but it was around that time that the news reports started showing casualties coming out of Vietnam and started showing the horrors of Vietnam. And, and that was around the time that, uh, uh Walter Cronkite, uh, you know, said, went over there and they got the whole sales pitch from Westmoreland about how important the war was. And he came back and he said, they tried to sell me the war. And, and, and the, the saying to this day is, you know, when you've lost Walter Cronkite, you've lost America. I, that's, that's all I really wanted to say. I just think that's the reason why any president, whether Republican or Democrat, they, they have a difficult time canceling student debt yeah. because they don't want a whole lot of young people in the streets protesting, especially the wars. It may be that it was an intentional instrument of social control, and I think that you know you can build a case around that. And even if it wasn't an intentional instrument of social control, if it was just you know, hey, greedy bankers wanting to make more and more money on on you know higher and higher tuition and colleges, you know, starting to want to pay their presidents 
you know, multi-hundred-thousand-dollar fees and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it was, it has ended up being that. There are a lot of students who are scared to death of getting kicked out of school and, and you know, leaving in your second or third year of a four-year program and not being able to get back in and still being stuck with the $50,000 in debt. So, yeah, spot on, Marvin. Well said. Jan in uh, Dotham, Alabama. Hey, Jan, what's on your mind today? We are not a socialist country, yet I also agree with you that we do have some socialist programs like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And then it was also mentioned uh, that some people think that government is using other people's money to fund these social programs. But I, I think, no, we are using our money to fund programs for us because right. we all go to school. We all need health care. Um, we all need the police or the fire department. Um, there's so many programs, and they all work for us, and we do all pay taxes. However, I do agree with Bernie that not all people pay their fair share, and it's not that we're trying to take money away from people who are successful, but rather just have them pay their fair share because they use the same programs that everybody else does. Yeah, and I think the best example of what you're talking about here, Jan, is uh, Social Security. Social Security is not funded by rich people at all. If you make over $140,000 a year, every penny you make above that $140,000 or whatever it is now, $141,000 and change, every penny you make beyond that is not taxed for Social Security. So it literally is the bottom 90% funding their own retirement programs, old, old age retirement programs, and funding social security disability, which is a huge program that is a lifetime insurance policy against disability, which you can't buy on the open market. And, and, right. it's, and, and it's like average working people and poor people, I mean, if you only make $10,000 a year, you're paying social security taxes on 100% of your income. If you make $10 million a year, you're paying social security taxes on a small, on, you know, less than 5% of your income. Or, you know, again, I can't do math in my head that fast, but it's it, yeah, a tiny, tiny percentage. And so, I, right. you know, I think I think your, your point is, is uh, spot on and, and well said. Jan, thank you very much. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind today? Well, uh, with all of the voter suppression and people being thrown off the rolls and not knowing it, I'm just wondering how soon is too soon to start reminding people, double check. Double check whether you're still registered to vote. Find out how to re-register because your vote counts. Yeah. If my recollection is right, when Jeb Bush threw 90,000 African Americans off the voting rolls in Florida just in time for his brother to run for president in that state, um, he did it about four or five months before the election. So people probably yeah. wouldn't have known you know, what or when or where or how they were doing it. Um, but I may be wrong but on that. Month, but but it's always in advance too late. I it's, mean, it's never too it's it's never too early to start looking, Sandra. Particularly because in yeah. some states you have to register, you know, months in advance in order to vote yeah. in an election. Um, and well, particularly with primaries, yeah, you know. And yeah. so, so this so this is this is a great time, mm -hmm. and and thank you for pointing that out. That that's a great one. And 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 thank you. And, and by the way, the Morrill Act, which created the land-grant colleges I was ranting about a little earlier, um, the Morrill Act was passed in 1862. It was Congressman Morrill, um, uh, you know, that, that Abraham Lincoln signed into, into, uh, into law. So, Chris in Portland. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Is it true, or do you think it's true, that the reason why we won't 
you know, the government won't get rid of student debt is because, you know, of the army. No. That because without that, people wouldn't be joining. Right. The you know the GI Bill does get a lot of people into the military, but I you know all the, if they want to get more people in the military, all they have to do is raise the pay a little bit, um, or or reduce the requirements, I suppose. But no, I, I I don't think that that's it, Chris. I think I think what's happened is that this this slow evolution happened. You know, when when Reagan like like I said before, when Reagan came into office, tuition covered 20% of the cost of going to college. And now tuition covers as much as 80% of the cost of going to college. And the difference was made up by state, local, and federal governments. And Reagan started dialing back the federal piece of that in the 1980s. States started dialing back the state part of that throughout the 90s. And we just saw this gradual process of college getting more and more and more expensive as both Democratic and Republican administrations in state after state and at the federal level as well saw, you know, being fiscally responsible. You know, they were all drinking the Reagan Kool-Aid to a certain extent, the neoliberal Kool-Aid. And, and so, you know, college just got more and more and more expensive until, you know, here we are with, you know, all these people walking around with $100,000 student debt or $50,000 student mm-hmm. debt. And, and it's, uh, it's crazy. So that, that, that's my right. take on that, Chris. I, I, I don't think okay. that, yeah, I, I don't think that it's uh, the, the army. Um, although it's an interesting thought. Nick in Crofton, Maryland. Hey, Nick, what's on your mind today? Biden needs to add more people to the Supreme Court. And to your subject that you were talking about uh, a little earlier, uh, student loan debt, I think he needs to, to do bold things like that. And I agree. I think, well, I heard this morning on one of the morning shows getting dressed for work that his poll numbers, even, you know, with all of the good news that, that you know, most of your listenership and you and I both know that he's been actually doing very well as far as his job numbers and different things that he's done. I'm not 100% in Biden's camp, but I think overall he's done a pretty good job. Um, his, his numbers don't look good, and that doesn't pretend too well for the midterms. Yeah. So that's why I think he ought to do... I mean, I, I, let me get your opinion on this. Uh, what do you think that the White House thinks about the electorate? Because do they think that if you do a move, which I think would be bold, like eliminating a large portion or all of student loan debt would be like such a shock. I mean, I don't know what people think about that that would be wrong with that. I mean, to me... Well, I can tell you how Republicans will message against it because they've already been doing it, which is to say, it's not fair. I paid off my student loan debt last year, and now the guy sitting next to me in the office just got $40,000 knocked off his student debt. Where's my $40,000? That's how they're going to play it. Well, therein lies the problem of, of you know, which oft talk about messaging of the Democratic Party to come yep. back at that and yep. say... Um, you know, this would be an instant jolt. You, know, you have you have generations of people who are still living in their mother and father's house, can't yep. buy a new car. Yep. You know, all of that, and we need to, you know, absolutely little infinite too, and go right back at them with a lot of things. Just like I believe the Supreme Court, I think Biden needs to stand up there and say, in a major way, to say, look, I've seen enough over this year and a half. These people can't be negotiated with. One, they believe that Donald Trump won the election, and they're insurrectionists. Two, they think that January 6th was fine with me, a, a tourist uh, 
occasion or whatever. Three, they think that masks and vaccines during this, this hell that this country has been going through are not needed. I can't negotiate with these people, so I'm going to do things by executive order executive yeah. order yeah. that I need to do. And I actually think that people would stop eating or drinking and look at the TV and say, you know what, that sounds right. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, Nick. And there's a lot he can do by executive order that he hasn't so far. There's also a lot he can't do. There's an awful lot of stuff that requires Congress to act. And there, of course, he's got the problem in the Senate of uh, Mansion Cinema. I think it would be a politically strategic master stroke. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And who knows? It's a half a year until the election. Maybe Joe Biden thinks it'll be a master stroke, too, but it'll be more effective uh, in August or September. We'll see. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Tom in Seattle. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Don't tell anyone, but I like to listen to these right-wing talk shows sometimes. Oh, I do occasionally, too. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's almost like to subscribe to a service. They, they have common themes. And all of a sudden, they decided to muddle the ground on what socialism is. And two of them even started out the same way. They said, you like, uh, so you like socialism. Well, you love living in Venezuela. Are you talking about today? Did you hear this? Is that what prompted that no, call no, earlier? This was some time ago. This was some okay. time ago. All right. Yeah, they have different themes now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I'd like to know how these people are, if they have a common sponsor or a think tank someplace that feeds them this information, because... Yeah, they do. It's amazing. There's, there's a few yeah. high-profile ones, like Heritage Foundation and Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of smaller ones. There's state policy centers in every state. Um, yeah, there, there, there are some, there's the, the Donors Trust, you know, the, I mean, there's some, some very large kind of umbrella organizations. And basically what they all do is they funnel money from giant corporations and billionaires down to uh, politicians, commentators, uh, people who are editing, you know, uh, the Internet sites and, and wikis and stuff like that. 
And essentially what they're doing is manufacturing consensus, to borrow a phrase from Melitowski. That's their goal, is to, is to get everybody thinking the same way. To get, if you can convince everybody in America that communism and socialism are the same thing, and that socialism is the same thing as Medicare, then you can convince every, you know, enough people in America that we should privatize Medicare, and so it's no longer socialist. And by the way, that's what they're doing. They're 50% of the way there right now. We've got to start getting this out, getting people aware of this. This is uh, terrible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, and, and I, I think Bernie took us a long way in this direction, uh, Tom, and it was a good thing, you know, saying that he was a democratic socialist, to start, you know, cutting through the BS on the, on the right that socialism is the same thing as communism and socialism is going to lead the United States to end up um, you know, like like East Germany or or uh, some of these other countries right now in Venezuela and Cuba, you know, you can't you can't engage in dissent in Cuba. They just arrested a whole bunch of people who were engaging in dissent. I, you know, I think that's wrong. I, you know, that that what does that have to do with an economic system? That's a politician trying to hang out of power, is what that is. And that can happen in a communist country. It can happen in a in a in a country like Hungary that is not a, you know communist country. That's theoretically a a democracy. It can happen in Russia, in a country that's more, you know, part democracy, part oligarchy. It can happen anywhere. And 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 this conflation of economic systems with political systems is just nuts. And but you know, it's it's the whole neoliberal experiment too. Um, you know, is they they had a big investment in making sure that that's how people thought, and they they were doing it. You know, I mean, they've been doing it in a big way since the 1980s, but. The, they, they came up with this whole neoliberal idea around the end of the World War II in 1947 in Mount Pelerin, uh, Switzerland, where they, uh, uh, you know, Friedman and Mises and, and uh, Hayek and a, and a whole bunch of other guys got together and hatched the scheme and came up with this word, you know, neoliberalism. And, uh, and then what did the neoliberals say? They said, well, you know, socialism is like communism a lot, and you don't want that in your country, do you? And here we are. There's one story I wanted to flag for you that I think we all need to pay attention to, and this is the Shanghai lockdown. China did a really great job against the original COVID and even the Delta variant. They had fewer than 5,000 deaths in a country of over a billion people over a period of almost two years. But then Omicron came along, and Omicron, and they did it, by the way, through lockdowns and, and mask mandates and, and quarantines and stuff like that. Now, they also have vaccinated their population, but they're using an older vaccine type that isn't quite as effective. And now the, the Omicron variant, and by the way, there's a new variant on the variant that's spreading in, in Europe right now. Um, it's just a variant on the B, uh, BA2 or DA2 or whatever it is, the new one. But uh, now the Omicron variant has gotten into China and it's gotten all the way down to Shanghai, which is their largest port. The Shanghai Pudong Airport is shipping just 3% of its normal rate of cargo. And the, and the seaports are also largely shut down. I'm just telling you, get ready. This is an advance warning. We're going to start seeing, once again, just like we saw about a year ago, ships were not coming into the United States, and then suddenly we couldn't process them because there were so many. We're going to see the exact same supply chain problems happen 
over the course of the next couple months as a result of this shutdown in Shanghai. The Maersk, the Danish shipping company, warned last week that the trucking services in and out of Shanghai would be cut by 30%. The uh, executive vice president of the global freight company, DSV, says trucking is the main issue we have. Uh, he, he, he says we can't book trucking services right now to get stuff to the ports. Now, this, is all, this all has to do with the Chinese lockdown. Nomura, the Japanese bank, this week estimated that 23 cities and almost 200 million people were under full or partial lockdown in China. Lars Jensen, uh, the executive director of uh, Vespucci Maritime, uh, it's a consulting company, says once Shanghai opens, there will be a surge of volumes and upward pressure on spot rates. In other words, shipping costs are going to go up again, and we're going to see another spike in inflation. And sadly, the Fed will probably try to deal with it by raising interest rates. And raising interest rates has nothing to do with this supply chain problem coming out of Shanghai that all has to do with COVID. Now, what a day, huh? A lot of interesting stuff going on here. Let's see here. Gary in Kansas City, Kansas. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, in keeping with your theme of Republican uh, corruption, I wanted to list the four corrupt GOP economic messages today. Okay. Uh, I wanted to start out with number one. Republicans say billionaire corporations are blameless job creators, so we have to give them everything they want and make them people. But in fact, as we talked before on the program, the Kauffman Foundation study has shown that Fortune 500 corporations basically created no new net jobs over a 30-year period, I think ending around 2009 or 2010. So that's the first myth. The second myth that Republicans say is that slashing billionaire taxes helps the economy. But we found that slashing billionaire taxes from 1918 through 1929, slashing them from 77 to 24% created the Great Depression. We found that slashing billionaire taxes from 1945 through 1987, from 94% to 38%, caused the 1987 stock market crash. And we found that slashing billionaire taxes in 1983 through 2008, and also slashing capital gains taxes by in excess of a fourth, caused the 2008 Great Recession. So that's number two. Number three, Republicans say that government aid to the poor hurts the economy. But we all know that when a poor person gets a dollar of income, they have to spend almost every penny of that dollar just to survive, which then stimulates the economy. Every extra dollar we give to a billionaire, they only spend a portion of that dollar. Yeah, most of it just goes in the money bin. That's right. And so they don't stimulate the economy. And the fourth big myth of Republican economics is Republicans say we can't increase the minimum wage because of inflation. But in fact, most of the current inflation is caused by corporations raising their prices to get rapacious profits. And that's causing inflation. And I think that as Democrats, if we go along with your theme of corruption, and then after we've made it simple, if we then on occasion can amplify the corruption by explaining some of the specifics, I think we can win some people to our side and perhaps have some real success in 2022. I think so. I I like your points, Gary, and, and I can't disagree with any of them. 
I would add to it that Republicans had this thing back in the 80s where they were elevating, they, they created job creators. I don't know if it's a Frank Luntzism or not, but it probably is. You know, if you just give more money to rich people, they will, they will hire somebody. And, the, and that, there was that slogan, you know, I've never seen anybody hired by a poor person, which is, by the way, complete nonsense. I've hired lots of people when I was taking no salary whatsoever when I was building my own businesses. Um, and that's true of most small businesses. <laughs> most of them are not started by rich people. And, that's exactly right. And, 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 but they're not even bothering with those lies anymore, Gary. I mean, that's it's right. been a long time since I've heard anybody talking about job creators. They've all, everybody's figured out that that's a scam. They've moved on now to saying that, uh, you know, they're the ones protecting our children from critical race theory and pedophiles. I mean, that, that's now their shtick. So, I, you know, it's, it's going to be tough selling economics, but I'm with you. Gary, you, you did a great, great summary of those four points. I love it. You should turn it into an op-ed and push it out there and tweet it at me, and I'll retweet it. John in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Just had a short story about the uh, Medicare Advantage. I run a s- small store in uh, a place called Ostrander, Ohio, about 20 miles north of uh, Columbus. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one of my regulars, it's right in the middle of Trump uh, country. And uh, so I, one of my regulars, he comes in, and I constantly tell him that he's not on Medicare because he's on Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the other day he comes in and tells me that they're not paying for a test. It's like $1,500. Whoa. Uh, so he comes in the other day and tells me that Humana is telling him that they're not paying it because Medicare itself is not approving it. Which is a lie. Yeah, and that's what I keep telling him. I go, dude, you're being lied to. I go, you're not on Medicare, you're on Medicare Advantage. Right. I go, it's private, you know, it's just just funny. It's just a brand. Yeah, isn't that just crazy, though? Yeah, I think the easiest, you know, if if Congress wanted to pass a law to start, and and I don't know, maybe I should write an op-ed about this, it might make a pretty good rant, that doesn't change anything financial at all. That, that all it does is says that the word Medicare may only be used to describe Medicare. Right. Because that was the big innovation in 2003. Uh, I mean, Medicare Part C, which was, you know, private uh, insurance plans that could replace Medicare, that goes all the way back to the 1960s. It was just always this little tiny slice of people, who, of, of companies that were serving people in, in, in very unique categories of types of government employees who weren't eligible for Medicare for one reason or another. I mean, it was a niche market. And what they did in 2003 was they said, you may call the program that you offer under Medicare Part C, you may call it Medicare Advantage. And, and so that, you know, and and so I would say that they should, they should make it so that any, any commercial reference to Medicare must refer exclusively to the actual Medicare program rather right. to any of these private programs. So people like your friend would know. He'd, he, you know, he'd have Humana Elder Care. I mean, they'd have to come up with a new brand, right? They would call Back. it Elder Care or Elder Care Advantage or, you know, Old Farts Insurance or something. I mean, but they can't call it Medicare. And that would begin the process of, of educating Americans to the scam that has been perpetrated on them ever since 2003, ever since George W. Bush did this to us. Exactly.
exactly. Yeah. yeah, I just I find it so funny though that they're Is he is he getting pissed off enough at Humana that he's ready to say, Okay, that's it, I'm gonna try and go back to regular Medicare? Yeah, he has actually saying that. So. Yeah. Well, good luck. He's going to have to wait until October of next year, and even then, he may find that uh, the uh, the companies that sell the policies that fill the gap, the twenty percent gap, won't sell yeah, him a policy. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's, it's like that door gets closed on you once you've been in Medicare Advantage for more than a year. Um, it's a hell of a lot uh, more difficult, and sometimes, you know, functionally impossible to get back right. on real Medicare. John, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. What a great story. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, Irene in Clovis, California. Thank you for sitting on hold as long as you did. Uh, my apologies, it took this long to get to you. What's up? I came here to uh, the U.S. about 38 years ago to be a nurse. And you were talking earlier about socialized medicine. I, I was very appreciative of learning about medicine in America for the last 38 years and understand how important it is for research and innovation that there is the private sector and private medicine. Mm -hmm. However, coming out of socialized medicine, there is an awful lot to be said that's good there. A mix is the perfect union, I believe. Mm -hmm. And though, working with colleagues and people here, trying to explain to them that socialized medicine wasn't communism was very difficult, and it still is, because the propagandizing of um, the American psyche about what actually socialized medicine is, I believe, is what makes it so foreign and so fearful yeah. to the American. You came from Ireland, I'm assuming? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and uh, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I only saw my main yeah northern yeah. part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, and 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 so uh, you get you have the National Health Service in in Ireland. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, and I have family back there, and they still participate, and you know, still going. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, it's, it's an excellent point. I I I think that so few people understand. Um, you know, the difference between socialism, communism, and, and, and the confusion has been, you know, massively amplified by, you know, like the Tea Party, you know, yelling about Obamacare. And then, and then you get these people showing up with signs that say, get your government hands off my Medicare. And they just don't know what's going on. By the way, it, it, the note here says you also wanted to speak about the food shortage that was predicted in the 1980s. We have just about a minute, Irene, if you want to, if you want yeah, to get to I, that. I understand that. I, and I appreciate even being able to talk to you. So I understand that. I'm going to say three, two things. One is very important. Education, education, education. That <laughs> is what matters in the world. Yeah. 
when you educate people, you have a, a better functioning economy, which it has been proven both back in the UK and here in America, those years post-war until the 70s. I experienced that too. So enough said about that. Yes, I was also a nurse in different parts of the world. And I was home in Ireland one night watching, we, we didn't have all night TV, but watching a TV that went on relatively later, my parents had gone to bed, and because I was awake, maybe jet lag, I recall watching this program of this economist, it was a documentary, talking about in the mid-80s, and I was only barely in my mid-20s, but it stuck with me that the in the future, he said, we were going to have the southern... Um, a migration of people from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere, yep. and it would be all to do with drought and lack of food. And here we are. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, Paul Ehrlich, who was really predicting this with his book, The Population Bomb, back in the 1970s. And here we are. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Norma, you're on the air. What's up? I have been making trips out to the west side of town where... There's a building where you take people to get an EBT card. What do you speak all food stamps? What's EBT? Or, uh, that's food stamps or welfare. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, electronic it's, benefit of some kind. Yeah. yeah, electronic food benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They, they get a plastic card, which gets loaded once a month for mm -hmm. the amount of money they're allowed to buy food. These people I'm taking out there are elderly women. Most of them, their spouses have passed on. And when most people don't understand is that when a spouse dies, the Social Security check gets cut. Yeah. And so they are now having financial stress, financial disasters, simply because of the prices of food, the so-called inflation, which is actually corporate greed. If it's not stopped, you know, I don't know what will happen to the country. Yeah. But and um, my son moved in six months ago, and he eats weird food. I eat organic and mostly plant-based like you. And he wanted a can of green giant corn and I'm looking at him like he's nuts because it's not something I consider food. I turned it around, I read the label to him. It says corn, water, sugar. Yeah. How many diabetics even understand the sugars in your vegetables? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's but if something isn't done to stop the greed on food, everybody out here is either going to need another stimulus check or they're going to wind up homeless because they can't pay the rent. Yeah. And they can't. And there, it's going to get a lot worse too, Norma, because you know uh, Ukraine and Russia, between the two of them, account for twelve percent of the world's calories in terms of food yes. production, which is yes. mind-boggling. Um, and when also most people here, they don't understand that they can get on the mailing list for the Alabama Public Commission, Public Service Commission, which regulates just about anything. Mm -hmm. And there's a meeting on the 14th to raise the water prices. Some corporation has bought every water treatment plant in the state, and they want it standardized for rates. And this is going to cost people more money. Yeah. Then on the 18th, this new corporation that bought all the sewer treatment plants is going to go in and have their hearing to raise sewer rates, which a lot of people have never paid because it's like the fire department and the police department. And so this is also going to take cash out of the elders' hands. Right. And yeah. I don't know how to stop the greed of foreign investment. These corporations should not be allowed to come in here in the United States and buy energy, electric, gas, water, and sewer, or anything that we need. 
And, you know, most of the phone companies are international or foreign. And so all of our dollars are leaving the country. Yeah. It's like the house across the street from me belongs to a guy from China. Those wage dollars go out of the country. Right. T-Mobile is, is based everywhere. in Germany. Yeah. Yes. And so how do we stop this? Well, I think we need some economic nationalism. And, and uh, you know, I've been saying that for de- decades yeah. now. Well, you and, know, you can't, you, you can't even put up solar in Alabama without paying a fee to Alabama Power, which is a subsidiary oh, yeah. of Southern Company. Yeah. Yes, and so they, they have built two large solar fields here, and they're going to control solar. Yeah, bizarre. Norma, thank you very much for, for your rant today, and your, your point, <laughs> points are well made. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's great to hear from you. Rob in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Rob, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call real quick. Uh, I believe that students, if they want to go to college, they should have to pay for that. And if they have already been to college and they have student loan debt, they should pay that debt off and it shouldn't be forgiven. So why should why, why are you opposed to investing in our in our intellectual infrastructure in this country? I mean, when we gave free college to a couple hundred thousand GIs returning from World War Two, we got seven dollars in tax in additional tax revenue that we wouldn't have gotten from those people because they made more money because they were educated. We got seven dollars for every dollar right, we invest. Yeah, the GI Bill. Yeah, the GI Bill. I'm a hundred. If they're a veteran, free college. In fact, I think a veteran should never have to pay taxes again. But but uh, it be benefited you, but the country. Why not do that right across the board? Having an educated populace benefit. This is why, Rob. I don't know if you realize this. We are literally the only developed country in the world that doesn't offer free or damn close to free college education to anybody who can qualify for it. In Denmark, well, they pay it's you not $400. Well, it's a, you know, not everybody needs to go or wants to of go Of course, to nobody's, so I'm not stipulating that everybody college. does. That's a, that's a straw man argument. That's a what about argument. What I'm saying is, if we don't invest in our youth, if we don't invest in education, we're going to end up with a poorly educated country. We're going to slide behind all these other countries that do educate their youth. I, student debt, in my mind, is a sign of a failing country. It's a sign of a country that has failed to invest in its intellectual infrastructure, and that will come down the road and bite it in the butt. And I think that that's happening right now all across the United States. You see more and more people who, who are malinformed or misinformed. We are falling behind a number of other countries in terms of the number of patents that we have. I mean, it's just, it, I think it's a crisis, Rob, but we have obviously different positions on these things. So I'll just leave it at that. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.